Hello, welcome back to another quarantined episode of the Scouted Football Podcast. We've been on a brief hiatus from pod duty of late, but we're back up and running now. Uh, In the meantime, we've spoken to Andy Howe, head of domestic first team scouting at Premier League side AFC Bournemouth, poured over the data and and footage to determine which of Italy's biggest clubs will be the best fit for Sandro Tonali, Uh, taking a deeper dive into Josh Madger's time at Bordeaux following the premiere of Sunderland Till I Die Season 2, um, as well as some great analyses on uh, West Ham United's Jeremy Ngakia and Stadrem's uh, Axel Di Sassi. Um, all of those interviews, uh, which have gone out in the past few weeks, uh, the, the transfer pieces and the analyses can be found on our website, uh, scoutedfootball.com, that is scoutedftbl.com. And there's plenty more to come in the weeks to follow. Um, we're going to keep putting uh, original independent football writing out into the ether for as long as football is away. But yeah, it's it's a busy time for us at Scouted. Uh, despite the slowdown, you know we're all working towards getting our player profiles done for the for the upcoming Volume Six release of the Handbook. Um, however, back to the podcast and today's episode number twenty three. Um, despite social distancing measures and the lockdown restrictions across the world, we are taking you to the south of France uh, for today. Um, as usual, I'm Joe Donahue, the Scouted Football Podcast host. And today, joining me on the pod is Mo Ali, uh, who is a French football journalist who has a particular penchant for all things Olympique de Marseille. Um, Mo, welcome to the Scout of Football podcast. How are things with you? Uh, thank you very much. Thank you uh, for inviting me. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent stuff. Um, so I suppose it's best to just get into the pod straight away. Um, but briefly, you're, you're a freelance football journalist. Um, I suppose to everybody listening, where where's your work been published recently? And, and are there any pieces you're, you're particularly fond of? Sure. So um, these days, I think where you can find me most is at Get French Football News, um, where we do a weekly podcast on Mondays looking at the league and action. We've got um, various profiles such as the GFFM 100 released on the 1st of January each year. Um, and you've also got uh, various bits of pieces that I work on at uh, sort of the Guardian, Goal.com, where some of maybe of your earlier listeners um, would have found me. Um, and also off sort of the written track, I've also been involved uh, with Olympic de Marseille, my favourite team, um, as part of its uh, international development. So I've actually been working closely with the football club sort of off the pitch uh, to develop its um, international branding. I'm sure most people fond of European football are familiar with GFFN. Um, it is a great site with some great writing on there. Um, and I suppose it'll come as no surprise to anyone who follows you on Twitter that you're a Marseille fan and, and you've been fairly vocal on various issues at the club over the past couple of years, um, at least since I've followed you anyway. Um, it's, fair to say, it's fair to say that your expertise lies in that field, but what was it that sort of made you begin supporting a club of you know, such rich footballing heritage in the first place? It's a good question. It's one that I get asked a lot of the time. Um, essentially, my journey began 13 years ago, so nearly uh, slightly more than half of my life uh, now. And I think it's just it came from a um, an idea that I sort of wanted to connect with my football club. You know, growing up in North London, um, the Premier League is a bit more of an entertainment product, unless you're obviously uh, supporting the teams um, in a way that you know gets passed down through generations and like for the vast majority it's sort of an entertainment product whereas you know it, it's more of the case either in the lower divisions in England or or across France especially in the provincial cities it's it's really more of a community-based franchise and I think we'll speak about this um, a little bit later where you know one club cities and and the special sort of place that they have in the city fabric and the infrastructure is what sort of tall uh, you know uh, Paul B. Tomasa, and obviously I think 
2007, 2008, when they were, when I started sort of following them, uh, they had been in England and sort of bringing their sort of special brand of support over here. And I had the pleasure of watching them you know, against teams like Bolton, Liverpool, Manchester United back in the old UEFA Cup and, and the early Champions League stages. So that's what initially taught, you know, pulled me to them. And over the uh, few years, I think the, the love has only grown stronger. Yeah, for definite. I mean, it it does kind of strike you as you know having that having that link where they came over for for European games and stuff. That'll only strengthen those links that that you felt to the club. Um, before we get into the football side of things on this podcast, um, I thought I'd throw in a little bit of information uh, on a story that I read on on Get French Football News um, when preparing for this episode, which is that amid the coronavirus shutdown, um, Marseille have turned their training centre into a place of refuge for for domestic violence and sexual assault victims. Which I'm, I'm sure you'll agree more. I think it's a tremendous gesture uh, and one which should be celebrated during a time when there's not really a great deal to be positive about. Um, of course, it's incredibly sad and troubling that the provision has to be there in the first place. But to have come up with the initiative is one small positive amid the, the current news agenda. Do you do you often get the feel that Marseille is, is really a community club? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I touched on uh, a bit on this in my, in my last answer. Um, you know, essentially you know, I've been there several times. It is, you know, a one club city, especially when you, you know, it's sort of in the professional sense, a high proportion of uh, of its citizens support Marseille. It's, a, it's one of the most well-known institutions of the city, you know, as as important as the government or the local council, um, um, sort of one of the biggest employers and all, all, and all the like, you know, the fan groups, um, the organised fan groups there have their own sort of business models. They are also part of the fabric and the furniture. So you, Marseille has a special place um, at the heart of, of of the you know of the city. For example, uh, where when it was bought in twenty sixteen by Frank McCourt, you know these discussions had to also go to the mayor, um, the mayor of the city who was involved, who was part of the unveiling and the announcement, um, which is sort of goes to show. And I think on your point of the domestic violence um, victims being housed at the club's training ground, it's it's sort of almost the least that they can do. I mean, in Marseille, I don't think anyone is surprised where, you know, in times of crisis and um, and, and suffering, the club steps up just as other institutions will step up and provide for 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 the city's residents. Um, there's also been further provisions. I think catering staff have been helping out with, you know, providing meals to the to the to the people that require them. Um uh, you know, and and the like, you know, resources have gone into fighting COVID in the city. So, I think it's it's a great gesture, and I think one one that needs to be applauded. As with every episode of the Scouted Football podcast, we are focusing on the under 23s at various clubs. Uh, and today, along with the individuals at Marseille, um, some of whom have featured in the Scouted Football handbooks, uh, we'll also be looking at some of the younger players uh, at other clubs in the south of France, namely Nice and Monaco. Um, so, I mean, it makes sense to begin with Marseille then. Uh, and what better place to start than with Boubacar Kamara, uh, who spent his entire career at the club and I say entire, despite the fact he's only 20 years old, because he's been with Marseille since 2005. Um, you know, a local boy, very good centre-back, known for his distribution from deep. Um, Mo, what is it about Kamara that has endeared him to Marseille's supporters? I think the first, you know, the first point is his love for the club. I think that's that's the main selling point. I think that's what... Um, 
gives you that extra little bit of a special relationship with with the club's fans who are as you know very notorious when it comes to um when it comes to expectation and are very difficult to win over so you know expressing your love for the club where possible at all times is it's the quickest way to sort of have them in your pocket so Kamara age 20 you know many many scouts across Europe will have known his ability you know he's made his debut over 2 years ago he's He's already featured in several European campaigns. He's, he's you know, thrived in a in a challenging environment. So it's no surprise that teams across Europe, I think Arsenal among, among them, have been interested in him. And there was a time where there was a contract situation where he could have gone and perhaps, you know, up sticks and gone to a better team to continue his development. But unlike certain other players who we'll get onto at the end of this segment, He's decided to stay. He's made very clear his love for Marseille that he 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 has no intention to leave. He has no interest in doing so, and that he wants to develop his um, career at Marseille. And a successful Camara will go a long way to ensuring a successful Marseille. I mean, his his attributes are pretty clear to see for anyone who watches him. You know, he's comfortable on the ball. He, he's tall enough to be a force in in, in aerial duels, despite feeling like he hasn't really fully filled out yet and also has sort of the ability and versatility to step into midfield. Um, what is it about his style of play that, that sticks out to you? Easiest way to answer that is that his his versatility. I mean, I absolutely love his ball playing qualities at centre-back, but Marseille, because of financial constraints and, and <laughs> questionable management one way or another, have had to chop and change their side quite a bit. And his ease of being shunted further forward into a number six role and then being very, very calm on the ball, bringing his defensive traits in front of the back four, stopping forward blocks is, is I think, the the best format. And I think, actually, personally, from watching him over the last sort of year or two and seeing him, you know, played around 30, 40% of the time as a number six, he actually performs better there for me, at least in the Marseille context, even though he absolutely prefers being a centre-back. But of course, it's the versatility and being able to play very well and adapting very well in, you know, more than one position is, is the key endearing uh, trait for me. Yeah, I mean, when I watched him with France's under-19s um, at the 2018 under-19 Euros, I, he, he was sort of one of the players that you thought, yeah, you know what, he could step up and, and, and maybe push up further up the field and play in that number six role. So it's obviously very good to see him, you know, adapting very well there. Marseille as a club have obviously had, you know, fantastic young players in the past, you know, the likes of Franck Ribéry and Samir Nasri spring to mind. Given how much first-team football he's had so far, uh, with Marseille, do you place Kamara on a similar pedestal in terms of his his long term potential? Absolutely. I mean, I think he is perhaps the first player in the McCourt era that began in 2016 um, who has genuine potential and talent and is very bankable, which is quite different from, say, the Nasri era or the Ribery era, or even more recently uh, with the likes of Andre Ayu and Maxime Lopez, in that the, the traits that he possesses are very. Uh, marketable in world football at the moment you know we've we've you know read recently the manchester city are very interested in in acquiring services and at the moment you know before coronavirus marseille kind of need all the money they can get with regards to financial fair play um but he's a person that has a whole lot of trajectory still ahead of him you know he's he he still ha- you know got a bit to learn he's not exactly the raw talent but he still has you know a couple of seasons where you know he needs to sort of rally himself right up to the highest level and when you compare him to some of the other players that have sort of come out of the Marseille team 
you know, they've sort of either drifted off or were sold too early or, or, or had sort of made lengthways to, you know, overtures to move. And I think a big negative of being at Marseille, but that's something that will hopefully change soon. It's his inability to produce young players and inability to sort of harvest them and make them grow. You know, we speak about Maxim Lopez, who we'll get on to in a second. You know, he 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 came to great fanfare in 2016-17 under Rudy Garcia, but then has somehow slipped and really isn't much to rave about these days. But with Kamara, you know, the fact that he's from the youth, the fact that, you know, Marseille don't really need to sell him because he's just recently signed a, a multi-year contract. And still, you know, Marseille are heading back into the big time with the Champions League qualification on the line. And then next year, having Champions League qualification at his hometown club for the first time in seven years would have been a big, big plus and a big sort of feather in his cap. That remains to be seen, of course. But right now, if you compare him with what's come out of uh, the Velodrome in recent years, he stands, I think, personally, head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah, he does give off that feeling, certainly, that he's sort of something special coming out of Marseille, where, where there hasn't been as much, uh, you know, as you say. I think one of the things that stood out to me about Kamara was the fact that th- this 18, 19 year old kid, fresh off the back of that under 19 Euros, where he was a standout player, um, you know, he came into one of France's most historic sides in a crucial position on the pitch, and, you know, more often than not, looked very much at home. I mean, you have to you have to consider this. You know, was a teenager who could play in a variety of positions, playing in one of the most demanding positions on the pitch in Europe's top five leagues, and he was, as you say, thriving in a challenging environment. He he, he was doing that at the time in a side who I'm sure you'll agree were were a side who were underperforming and in front of one of Europe's most notorious and fearless fan bases. So, I mean, how much does that say about you know his character as well as his actual ability? Exactly. You know, I mean, ability is one thing, but you need to have sort of a special level of toughness to succeed at a place like Marseille, especially, you know, the season that he properly broke through as a first team player, which was sort of the early part of last year. Marseille had sort of relatively imploded. It was a chaotic season. They missed out on Europe. Um, but, you know, a 20 million euro signing in Shaletta Saar had, hadn't, um, hadn't come good. Luis Gustavo was being shunted at centre-back, you know, much to his chagrin. And Adil Rami, you know, sort of went AWOL and is a special case unto himself. So to have a young lad sort of, you know, having appeared here and there in 2018 in that famous Europa League final run and really, you know, then coming on leaps and bounds as a uh, first-class defender has meant that actually, you know, perhaps Marseille didn't need to, to, to look for other reinforcements, you know. I think it also helps to be a sort of a hometown boy when things aren't going well, and I think you know fans, you know, do cut a little bit more of a slack. But he's obviously, you know, come so far in terms of adapting to the mental difficulties because it's not easy being at Marseille, especially when things aren't going well. But when things are, as was the case this season, uh, you know, to have you know sixty thousand plus fans cheering you on every week, specifically for him, I think there was a match-winning performance that he gave earlier this season and an innovation from from the velodrome. You know, it, it does a lot for, for a player his, his age. Uh, moving on to a defender who hasn't seen anywhere near as much first-team action as Kamara, but has done well on, on sort of limited viewing of him earlier this season, um, was Lucas Perrin, um, who, who's another who's come up through every youth group at the club's academy. Just from what you were saying earlier, from inside the club, what is, what is the opinion of him having you know, had no senior football up to the age of 2021? Uh, well, with with Luca Beren, it's it's more of a surprise 
that he's done so well. He was a former captain of the CFA team and the youth teams in at OM. Um, again, in normal seasons, and we if Marseille sort of had a fully stocked defence, there would have been a case for Perrin just being shunted out. In the case of Luca Perrin, it sort of under promise and over deliver. He's he's performed really well in 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 the games that he he has he has performed in. Um, and you know Marseille have only lost once. He 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 was put in um in a period where Buba Camara had actually been sent off earlier on in the season, and um, Alvaro Gonzalez had had suffered an injury. So with Shaleta Sar and uh, no sort of you know, defender being able to sort of uh, play again, play alongside a Croatian. Paramount just came out of nowhere. He's only relatively been fielded for the first three games um, as an emergency sort of backup, but then came in a in a tuna win over to lose at the end of November because Villas Boas had thought, you know, we could do with giving um, one of our defenders a rest. How about fielding um, Paran who? has rarely put a foot wrong so you know more power to him in, in, in coming out and impressing because again you know we again talk about the finances you know he is a home another hometown lad you know Marseille don't have a lot of room for error in terms of uh, uh, sort of margin in, in signing centre-backs especially in this market so having someone that is available and is able to perform can be a, you know a real um, opportunity. Uh, another first teamer that I'm keen to gain a little bit more insight into is Maxime Lopez, um, who you touched on just earlier, because his contract situation is that it's expiring in 2021, which means that he could very well be up for grabs on the cheap this summer. He is, of course, the diminutive central midfielder who burst onto the scene a couple of seasons ago, uh, but this year has really struggled for starts and, and seems to have sort of I don't want to say fallen off a cliff, but you know, hasn't lived up to the promise that he looked as though he was able to achieve. Why? Why do you think that is? I think it's a a combination of several factors, to be honest. Um, and it's a bit of a shame because, like you mentioned, you know, when he he came to such great fanfare in twenty sixteen seventeen, you know, it was sort of Rudy Garcia's plan that that he he put in Lopez um, as an idea. You know, basically telling the fans, "Look, I'm here to." To play differently, I'm here to really utilize the youth, you know, for a team that had barely done so in several years. So, for him to to perform so well in the first couple of months, you know, becoming player of the month, scoring a double um, against Khan in 2017, April 2017, at the age of 18, 19, it really sort of propelled hope that you know this guy was going to be a semi Nazri for the future. Three years on. He hasn't really kicked on. Um, his performances are are relatively mediocre. He he doesn't have a lot of goal contributions. He, you know, I mean, a lot is made of his sort of diminutive nature. He was very small on the pitch, you know, and 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 the passing um, that he was once famed for has become a little bit alright. Uh, you know, it's. I think the best way maybe to put it is he's he's sort of being cast as a jack of all trades. But master of none when it comes to the offensive play, and it's been it's been you know unfortunate this season where Villas Boas has sometimes played him even as a right winger because of you know the fact that there's no players available with Tolvan injured and and a couple of other suspensions and injuries in 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 the side. You know Lopez is seen as a sort of a dispensable, um, adaptable solution rather than being a cast iron first team member. That's not to say that he's had a um, a poor season, not by any means. It's just that the likes of Valentin Rongier and Morgan Sanson have become sort of key components for that 4-3-3 that Villas-Boas likes to play. 
and as a defensive midfielder, he would opt for Lopez. Is it's it's you know sort of being shunted down, and you know Ronchi is just as good a passer. He has more tenacity. He's probably up on most traits when you compare him to Maxime Lopez. So of course, there's going to be some sort of chop and change uh, for that. When you talk about his contract ending next year. I, I personally don't see him as being one of the more bankable talents. It's possible that he will find the midfield a little bit lighter and he might reimpose himself. So, yeah, I think he's just not kicked on, essentially. Yeah, he's clearly a player with ability, um, given his breakthrough, but it sounds like he's fallen down the pecking order considerably. And, and obviously, Rongier has now become far from expendable in that midfield. Um, for the sake of argument, if he were to move at the end of the season, you know, do you, would you see him remaining in France or do you think that he could make the jump to another top five league or or is it going to be the case that he's just going to run down his contract un, until 2021 uh, and just see it out and leave on a free transfer, which I suppose would be a shame given how he, you know, burst onto the scene. I mean, what are your thoughts on, you know, the future of Maxime Lopez? It sort of reminds me, although not to an alarmist degree, uh, reminds me of the descent of uh, of Anson Cosiello, um, the diminutive Nice playmaker of 2016-17, who was incredible that season, um, you know, with with the likes of Hatton Ben Arthur, Valerian and the like. And now he's, you know, went to Germany, didn't do too well. I think he had suffered a serious injury um, and is now back at Paris FC in the second division. I wouldn't go as that that you know that far in saying that Lopez's career is going to take a, a similar turn, but again, he's he's, he's not as bold, um, not as forward thinking perhaps as some of the other players or some of the teams would like their players to be in terms of you know driving up the pitch, creating chances. Um, he's more of a sort of like like you've mentioned in your in your in your, in your notes, sort of a secure distributor, someone that you know is passing the ball perhaps sideways. It's more of a safe. A riskless um, um, distributor of the ball. I personally think, and I don't see him signing a new contract. I'd be surprised if he does so. Where would he go? I think perhaps a, a step down in the gun to a mid-table tier. You know, the likes of Bordeaux and Etienne, perhaps yeah, someone else. Uh, he could end up in Spain, where I think they're perhaps a little bit more amenable to to his style of play, or or follow Cosiello to the to the Bundesliga again. Another perhaps you know good change of scenery to reinvigorate his career. Uh, yeah, visually, the comparisons to Vincent Cosiello are clear, you know, both being, you know, quite small midfielders um, and obviously playing in the same position. But I suppose it'll be interesting to see where he ends up if his contract does run out. The, the final Marseille player I'd like to discuss is Isaac uh, Lihaji, um, who is probably the least well-known of the four we've discussed. Um, you know, he's, he's only made two first-team appearances, um, but it's it's his exploits at the Under-17 World Cup back in October, which, which brought him to our attention at Scouted. Um, he got three goals and two assists at that tournament, which was the same as uh, Gabriel Veron, who won the golden ball there. Um, and France were probably the tournament's most dominant side in the games they played, um, but faltered late on in, in the semis against Brazil, the eventual winners. Um, with regards to Lihaji, what have you seen and heard of him in, in Marseille circles? Um, well, with with my experience of Lihaji came a couple of months before for the Under-17 World Cup. I actually was in Stoke, um, not Stoke, sorry, Stoke, Burton-upon-Trent at the, the FA's uh, St. George's Park, where Marseille played a pre-season friendly against Stoke last summer. And I actually didn't know anything about Lihaji um, at that point. Uh, they played a friendly against Stoke City. And he was 
honestly one of the players that absolutely stood out. Like, you know, the fact that we had a, a right winger who who had his pace, who had creativity, who could dribble very well past opponents, who who was, was a constant goal threat and really, you know, geared up for it. Everyone or the Marseille fans who who especially based in England who who did go to that game and sort of scratched their head and it's like who who is this player with a number, you know, thirty something on 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 his shirt, you know, like asking around and stuff. There was already a very viable buzz then um, alongside sort of the fan circles that came out of that game and the reports that came out. And he did well in the United States and in in a couple of preseason friendlies that summer. So again, it it sort of started the same buzz about you know we actually do have a youth talent could he become the next Lopez could he become the next Camara you know is he bankable all of that sort of you know rumors you know buzzing that went in back into overdrive and yet he's in the same position that Camara was uh two years ago two and a half years ago has the opportunity to to sign a contract enter into the first team and then continue his development that way and of course if he does well he, he'll be given minutes in Ligue 1 and you know, essentially, with Lahaji, you know, the stars had all aligned for him. He'd he'd broken through in the summer. He he's he's looked well in the early parts of the season, um, especially he was put on a couple of times as a substitute in Liga in the early part of the year. Contract talks had begun, and then Florian Tovan had his uh, long layoff, six months injury, and Marseille had no other right wing. So Lahaji's got more opportunity to sort of come into the team, start a couple of games, and really could have had a breakthrough season. You know. Scoring, you know, half a dozen goals or, or or assists over the course of the league and season, and yet because of contract, well, sort of a contract debacle, essentially, he's apparently been advised by a family member to to demand a significant amount of sum for OM, you know, something crazy like a one million euro signing bonus, and then with reports that you know teams like Arsenal, Lille, Dortmund, uh, Gladbach were sort of on the trail. Marseille they essentially run out of steam, and it's a shame because it's robbed OM fans of a new sort of fresh blood. Essentially, Villas Boas has, has also been clear: it's like you know, he's a fantastic player, but we need to protect the club's interests. And therefore, if he's not going to sign, if he doesn't see himself have a future here, then he's not he's he's not in a team, sadly. And that comes at a detriment to his his career. And I will not be surprised if it takes a while for him to get going again because of the fact he's he's lost roughly five, six months of sort of unbroken league and attention, unbroken runs in the first team. You know, there were times, like I mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago, where Maxime Lopez had to be shunted as a right winger or even Valer Germain and, you know, players that don't really ply their trade in that formation. So if Isaac Leaggi had played his card right, he could have had, you know, 15, 20 games by now. And, you know, maybe more of Europe would have been standing up. It would have been beneficial to him. It would have been beneficial to Marseille um, and, and the fans, of course. And sadly, um, I think that chapter is closed. So now he will run down his contract. That's fairly certain. Uh, I don't know how it will pan out during this pandemic, but he'll run out of his contract. And, and that will be that. And, uh, you know, there's rumours that he's thinking of signing a pre-contract at Lille and becoming another one of um, Luis Campos' and Gerard Lopez's um, pawns. But it's it's a shame, essentially, because from what I saw and the reports that I've sort of since heard of him, he's a fantastic player and a lot of potential, a lot of raw potential. Yeah, that definitely does sound like a shame. You know, I was going to ask a little bit more on sort of that contract situation, but you pretty much summed up everything that I had to ask there. I mean, you know, ultimately, do you see him signing a contract in the summer? No, he's probably going to run it down. Um, You know, will he renege on his his demands? You know, probably not. No. Um, 
And I suppose if he did make a move and sign that pre-contract with someone like Lille, yes, it would be good to see him, you know, getting those minutes. But, you know, he has, of course, had, you know, four or five months where he could have been playing in a team which was missing Florian Tovan and was having to, you know, put square pegs in round holes at right wing. And and I suppose for, for that to for that to have happened because of a contract situation, or rather for that not to have happened because of a contract situation, it is definitely a shame because, you know, we always want to see young players playing at the, at the highest level. And, and as you've said, he's shown he's capable of, of cutting it when he's been uh, put to the test in pre-season games. So it, it, is, it is a shame, but it will be interesting to see sort of how that pans out over the next couple of months, especially with, you know, the global situation. Just moving on, uh, Nice are another side, um, obviously situated in the south of France, um, who we're going to explore in today's episode. Um, they've got one of Ligue 1's younger and better squads, um, currently sat in sixth place, uh, four places behind Marseille. Uh, and they are managed by ex-Arsenal Patrick Vieira. Um, before we get into the specific players, uh, obviously Le Classique is the derby between Paris Saint-Germain and Marseille. Uh, but given the proximity, the geographical distance between, you know, Marseille and, and, and Nice, what is the sort of the relationship between those two clubs? Um, yeah, again, like, like you mentioned, you know, there's perhaps more pressing opponents for OM, especially with uh, Paris Saint-Germain, of course, and, and uh, you know, more recently Lyon. But Nice remains a thorn in their side, you know. The two clubs simply don't like each other. And it's just a sort of an old-fashioned um, locality rivalry. Um and actually, the games between Marseille and Nice have been actually quite thrilling, especially the fixtures at the um, at the Allianz Riviera. So it's it's a it's a good you know full blooded rivalry, especially in the times where Nice were pushing to enter the top three, top four of Ligue 1 a couple of years ago. Um, they've since you know sort of gone off the the boil a bit, but that's only because of um, you know rebuilding and and getting young players in and having sort of a change of direction. But in the intervening years between 2016 and 2018. Uh, in particular, there were some very, very good clashes between um, OM and Nice, and also it's one of those rivalries where sort of you begrudgingly hate them, but you know you do want them to be there just so that you can um, you, you know, use their energy and and develop into um, you know develop your sides into teams that have that character that can go to you know hostile places and pick up a well earned three points. Um, just rattling off a few names from Nice's squad list at the moment, and it's clear to see that they're stacked when it comes to, to under-23s. Uh, you know, Stanley and Soki, Kasper Dolberg, Adam Unar, Bassem Srafi, uh, Alexis Claude-Maurice, Kefren Turam, Yusuf Atal, Malang Sar. You know, the list is is exhaustive. Um, but I suppose the most identifiable ones for, for people with uh, a wider knowledge of European football would probably be Casper uh, Dolberg, given his time at Ajax. But the likes of Yusuf Atal could well become more commonly known names in their own right over the next couple of years. Um, so I suppose we'll start with him because he probably has the most distinctive style of any Nice player. You know, he's fast, he's direct, he's audacious. He's really, really entertaining fullback turned winger. He was one of 10 players who completed over 100 dribbles in Europe's top five leagues in 2018-19, which just shows you sort of the extent and the, the impact that he can have on the pitch. Mo, what are your thoughts on, on Atal? I mean, you mentioned it perfectly, essentially. I was agreeing with what you said. You know, he's a player that, you know, bombs down the right wing, absolutely great um, um, at getting forward, you know, uses the passing move sort of, you know, to, to great aplomb. He's someone that, it's a shame because of his, his injury, um, someone that's had his season curtailed. But, you know, last season, 
from from right back and left back, you know, being um, shunted all over the place. He was someone that struck six, you know, league and goals. I think it was joint top scorer or, you know, top scorer um, completely um, in that Nice side. He's somebody that, you know, is very attack-minded and someone that you know, you'd love to have, especially these days, um, as a fullback, someone with that vision with that you know knowing having that positional sense and getting forward and in getting onto um final passes and sort of driving the offense going going ahead he's you know is this season has been like like nice in general a bit of a topsy-turvy one um before his injury you know if you look at games against Dijon and Bordeaux where he was very very standout at that I think in one of the games he had both a goal and assist not as not as well as this year because uh, or the twenty nineteen season. That's largely because of the boardroom changes and 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 the squad changes at, at least. And I think he's been essentially promised to move, perhaps to Paris Saint Germain, perhaps to England and, and beyond. And yeah, perhaps you know, especially at the conclusion of the Africa Cup of Nations, having his head turned is is possibly a thing. Um, but now he's got to fo- focus back on recovery and then. You know, will those same suitors be there? That's something that remains to be seen. Uh, but absolutely, recovery and and getting back into the swing of things. Um, I guess Nice will be delighted to be able to have him for for a while longer as they look to rebuild under Ineos. Yeah. So first and foremost, just going back to you describing his style. Um, you know, he's a high volume dribbler. You know, bombing down that right flank, as you said. You know, takes on players at will. Has really good speed. Um, we're currently out with that knee injury, as you say, but you know, should be back for. Well, the remainder of the season, you know, whenever it resumes, hopefully. Nice, uh, as you say, you know, they've gone through a bit of a restructure and a rebuild under Ineos. But, you know, historically in the past few years, they have been essentially a selling club. Um, How much of an asset is he going to be, given how dynamic he is to to a club like Nice? Um, Well, it depends um, how Ineos see um, sort of the club, is it? You know, do they have ambitions to get back into um, the Champions League, which they performed admirably in the qualifying stages a couple of years ago? Um, are they going to be trouble Monaco, OM, Lyon in sort of the best of the rest competition Liga? Um, and for that, you need resources, and for that, you need to keep keep your players. I mean, you know, it's a case in point of Marseille in 2015-16. They could have sold, you know, all and sundry again, but they kept their players. You know, they got in Patrice Evra, they they made a splash with with Dimitri Payet and the likes to sort of consolidate themselves, and that's what Nice need to do. Um, they you know they can't be having a policy of selling young players, especially like in the in the in the case of uh, Claude Maurice and Una. You know they've made investments in buying young players to 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 sort of reinvigorate their squad to to get in young players with a lot of potential, but also some experience, especially of of Ligue 1. To make their case, so if that's if that's going to be the situation, they need to provide all of the ingredients. That being said, you know Atal is somebody that can really kick on, and you know somebody that can definitely do a job and and become an integral part of any sort of top team, uh, top ten European club. And for that, you know they're going to have to pay sort of good value because there's a great market for fullbacks who have that creative ability, who have that vision um, and have that pace and high volume dribbling, like you mentioned. Um, so, you know, there's going to be suitors for him um, and it remains to be seen how Nice will sort of take care of the situation when it does arise. Um, he's contracted to the club until 2023, but I suppose it's having 
heard what you've just said there. It's hard to see him really remaining there until then if he continues at the current you know explosive rate that he has done when he returns from injury. Uh, and and in, and if Ineos, you know, do see him as as a bankable asset, really. Uh, another one of Nice's under twenty threes is one you just touched on there is Alexis Claude Maurice, um, signed from Lorient in uh, last summer. Um, and I suppose on first inspection, one goal and one assist in twenty two league games this season isn't a great return. It's not what would have been hoped for him. But he has done better against you know weaker opposition in the cup competitions and at the beginning of the, se- of the season while he was still in Ligue 2 with Lorient. I suppose what I'm asking is, is, is it probably a little bit too soon for him to be a protagonist in the league on side? A little bit too soon, I think it's a fair it's a fair observation, but there are signs that he's sort of turning the corner when it comes to his performances. I mean, this is somebody that had a very, very productive season in league deal last year, somebody that was a subject of, a, I think, between 10 and 15 million euro signing of Nice, um, which they knew they wanted him as sort of the crown at least the domestic crown jewel of, of, of the next stage of their investment, though it came very, very late um, in August when Ineos took over. But it still, you know, provided, you know, a, a good player, you know, for, for Nice fans to sort of salivate over and help them get to the next level. He himself maintains that his initial start of the season was very, very poor. Um, he himself called it a 2.5 out of 10. It been unable to be adapted, you know, to to league on football, unable to adapt to to Vieira's methods, and essentially not really asserting himself. Um, overall, you know, poor finishing, poor crossing, you know, being easily sort of beaten, um, not a massive amount of defensive contribution. But you know, he scored his first goal in in, in a defeat against Nîmes, and specifically before the. Um, the restart. He's been having a lot of really good games, and Nice have been enjoying more successes. I mean, he was fantastic in the uh, wins against Lyon and Monaco, two high flying teams, and two you know fantastic victories that enabled Nice to sort of uh, consolidate their top half uh, position. Really, February and March have been his real introduction to Ligue 1, as you as you, as you say. Now, of course, this comes at a very bad time with what's been going on in the world, but. You know, they're hoping that, you know, especially if Atal does come back for the resumption of the season, whenever it may be, we're looking at the start in the mid of June, currently at the time of uh, this podcast in Liga. Um, you know, Claude Maurice is going to be someone they're going to look forward to, continue where he left off. You know, he hasn't had the chance to really have a a, you know, a, a sustained run in his favourite position uh, to develop and um, to, to contribute that way. You know, that should come as these good performances come in, as key players come back and as Vieira settles on his 11. But, you know, the blame just doesn't lie on him. Um, but it also goes on to, I think, the coaching of him so far. Uh, just moving on to AS Monaco, just along the coast, um, they've got considerable pedigree uh, when it comes to young players, particularly over the last decade or so since their promotion back to Liga and under the ownership of Dmitry Rybovlev. Um, they just about survived as a league one club uh, last season, finishing 17th after a really torrid campaign under Leonardo Jardim, Thierry Henry and then Jardim again. Uh, but currently now they have uh, Robert Moreno, who's... who's uh, who's their manager, who previously had uh, been assistant manager at Roma, Celta Vigo, uh, Barcelona and, and and the Spanish national team, uh, as well as a brief stint in the top job in Spain 
uh, towards the end of last season as well. Um, his his background is very much in youth football, which is interesting um, as he's coached a variety of youth sides, you know, during the 2000s, earning his spurs as, as, a, as a coach. Um, so you'd hope that he knows his stuff when it comes to developing young players. Um, and Monaco in particular have a couple of uh, high-profile young players in their first team at the moment. You know, you, you look at Alexander Golovin, uh, still just 23, and uh, Aurelien Chiomeni, um, just 20 years old himself. But I'd say the vast majority of their youngsters, um, unlike last season, uh, are out on loan this year. Um, f- from your perspective, Mo, what are the thoughts on Monaco's progress over the next couple of years and, and the wealth of talent that they have in reserve? You know, will they be threatening the top two again anytime soon? You know, will they be taking that best of the rest title? Um, I think some listeners will be surprised for me to say that I'm not exactly a fan of um, sort of the way that Monaco have sort of gone about um, sort of their development um, and sort of the acquisition of these youngsters in the last couple of years. Um, Especially, I think, over the last 24 months, uh, probably. And the reason I think it... I think it sort of reflects muddled thinking um, on their behalf. I think it's fantastic that they've got the resources to scout sort of these raw gems, um, you know, from a couple of years ago. Bernardo Silva is obviously a, a great example. Um, and obviously, I think in, in recent times, they've sort of had an eye on the domestic market uh, where they've signed uh, Yusuf Afanu, who I think has been very impressive uh, since coming in, and Ochoa Meni from, from Bordeaux, another sort of domestic uh, catch. They're quite voluminous when it comes to you know, picking out scouting young players and then getting them through the door and then throwing them um, elsewhere. But if that's to be their policy, you've also have some surprising loans. It's it's really I think they're trying to develop the same blueprint that won the league and title and enabled those many many millions of euros of sales that they achieved at that period. But you know, trying to reinvent the world that way, even though they haven't got the same resources and perhaps football has changed. You know, there are new obstacles and new challenges, and they've wasted a lot of time in thinking that they know what they want, but then in practice, um, to sign say differently. Signing William Goebbels for, for 15, 20 million euros. Uh, Pietro Pellegri is another one, Jordi Ambula. Um, in, in domestically, you've got Grancier and Johnny Aholo. You've got fantastic youngsters in Jonathan Panzo and Lyle Foster, who played the first game of the season against Lee on the 3-0 defeat um, on the opening night back in August, but then shunted back to to the Belgian league with with Bruges it really is just a lot of mess at the moment there's no consistent coherent strategy as to what the end game is with with these players and you know Monaco the a couple of years ago um you know from that descent struggled in Ligue 1 they almost got relegated last year this year you know very very poor start once more but they've stabilized under Moreno who despite you know I think has looked okay um last couple of weeks before the the season was stopped but um there are still question marks you know you've had the, the defeat to nice you know failure to beat you know dijon and ram it remains to be seen i think the jury's still out for monaco and their sort of program at the moment um you mentioned there uh, that uh, aurelien chumani uh, was poached from bordeaux recently uh, and was a great player for france's uh, youth international sides in terms of him and, and the likes of you know eighteen year old William Goebbels, you know who also made the switch from from Lyon for for twenty million euros as, in twenty eighteen, as you mentioned, you know these are players who you know haven't seen all too much time on the pitch for Monaco, um, particularly this season. I mean, we even look at the likes of Pietro Pellegrini, who who arrived to much to much fanfare, but then has 
pretty much dropped off the face of the earth. You know, I, I can understand where you're coming from with that whole, you know, the, 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 the muddled approach is how it sort of, how it sort of seems in, in their youth recruitment at the moment. But I mean, sort of what are the hopes for, for those players, you know, the, the Chimenez, the Goebbels, the, the Pellegris, you know, the, the bigger names of, of the youngsters? Again, it's a shame, really, because what Monaco have sort of replicated is the Italian format, where you've got so many players contracted um, that essentially there's only an eighteen sort of eighteen spots in the matchday squad. So you're contending with so many competitors in in your own turf, and you know being sent to you know God knows where. Um, you know, and and not really being able to break break through, especially every transfer window comes news of three or four youngsters that Monaco wants to buy. It's quite hard, and essentially you're going to get a lot of collateral damage in that players like Pellegrini and like Kubos has found much to his uh, displeasure these days, um, who were once touted as the next Martial or the next you know um, whomever have not really had the opportunities that were afforded. And that's because Monaco don't have that coherent strategy, as we said. You know, uh, many, as uh, you know, in particular that you mentioned, it's a very versatile player. It's a very interesting player. And I think those that have a lot more data at their disposal than I uh, would have obviously picked this out. But, you know, he's a player that has that sort of tenacity in, in, in defensive midfield, has, has a, a good sort of defensive abilities, but has very, very good eye uh, when it comes to passing, is is very very comfortable on the ball, and enables him to play a lot at the base of that midfield um, in various formations. In, in Bordeaux, he's played a, uh, you know within four three three, a four three two one, three four two one, a very com- many combinations uh, that Paulo Sousa has has enabled. Started off the season very very well, but has looked very very poor for for much of the last two three four months. But that still did not stop Monaco from from bidding twenty million for him. Paulo Suto actually once, when there was a lot of news regarding a potential move, subbed him off after thirty nine minutes, and just said you know, Blake Neon Canapolis uh, later that evening that he was just you know absolutely crap. He deserved to have been taken off, etc. This is a player that still has a lot to refine about his game. Again, Monaco with their arsenal of data have probably been tracking him a lot longer than that and have clearly seen something that enabled them to spend 20 million, um, which Bordeaux, of course, in their financial troubles, are not going to reject, but has since played only two games, you know, 32 minutes and, and 12 minutes at home against Angers and Ram, both of which were very poor substitute appearances. And by that point, you know, this was at the start of um, Robert Moreno's campaign as Monaco boss, you know, he's, he's going to be settling into his, his 11 very soon. And I, and I think for all of his youth credentials, if Monaco wants to solidify themselves back into that top three, top four equation in Ligue 1, they're going to be needing to rely on a lot on experience, especially since they've got the funds to do so. You know, this is this experiment on youth can't really last too long. And say for one or two shining examples, for fun, another signing from Strasbourg has looked you know, infinitely better than Chiromani so far. And he's a preferred player by um, Moreno at the moment. He's going to be settling on an 11. So essentially, Chiromani faces already an uphill battle to his Monaco career. 
Yeah, he, he does. I mean, a player that hasn't really played very much, and of course, the the likes of Fofana in there, who are who are you know hot competition for his his position. You know, very much like that uh, that Italian model that you alluded to there, which was a comparison that makes perfect sense, but I hadn't thought of whatsoever. Um, I suppose you know the fact he hasn't been sent out on loan like many of the um, of the other uh, young players that Monaco have on their books uh, means that he is seen with a view to being a first team player, uh, even if he is bit part at the moment. And I suppose, understandably, you know, the managerial turnover and turmoil since since his arrival, you know, cannot have been good for getting consistent starts or regular game time. I suppose while while the jury's still out on how Moreno's performed so far, his history with young players um, should stand the likes of Chiamini, Goebbels and Co. Uh, in good stead. So there's every chance they could develop further at the club. But that is a big if at the moment. That is all from us on the Scouted Football Podcast today. Uh, our little foray across the south coast of France uh, comes to an end. Um, thank you to Mo for joining me and for providing heaps of insight into the inner workings of Marseille, uh, as well as their closest geographical rivals. Mo, do you have anything of yours you'd like to promote? Maybe some GFFN stuff uh, or anything else in the works, perhaps? <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, nothing at the moment, obviously, given the current situation, but... Um... When the leagues do resume, um, you know there'll be a lot of information coming, uh, especially when the transfer window does resume. So feel free to give us a follow, um, and you know have a have a listen on the uh, GFN Fen pods uh, that come out both Monday and Thursday. I think I speak for for all of us when I say it can't come soon enough. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I've been Joe Donahue, and you've been listening to the Scouted Football Podcast. Bye for now.